right. Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? You know, I say, first of all, before I get into this, welcome to visitors. I see a lot of new faces. If you're here and this is your first time or second or third time and we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm going to be hanging out after service. I know the Bronco game starts at 11. I know that. But they won't start losing until the fourth quarter, so you got plenty of time. Wow. Wow. Even for me, that was cold. But anyway, hey, uh, glad that you guys are here. I'd love to connect with you. Gabe and I will be hanging out in the foyer afterwards. We'd love to answer your questions, take you on a tour, whatever it is that you need to, to get the information you need. I know how hard it is to go out and search for a new church or try a new place for the first time. It's like the five-minute greeting time is the most awkward five minutes in your entire life if you're not the kind of person that likes that. Some people, Melinda, like it so much that you have to, like, point and say, please sit down because five minutes is over. So, But other people are like, when is this going to end? So I appreciate that. I know how hard it can be. But we feel that we have just such a great experience here. We love our family. We love that our family loves each other. And, and we just want this to be a pleasant experience for you. So if you have any questions, anything at all, please see us after service. We'd love to, to talk to you about that. Um, another thing that I want to let you know is that we are in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We teach an expository style, which means that we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse for the most part. And we have been in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ now for 16 weeks. That's a long time to be in one book, but I hope that you've been finding life out of it. This is for everybody. I hope that you've been getting life out of it. Now, if you're a visitor or maybe you're kind of sporadic and you've missed a lot of those, you can go back and you can check out our website. Go to our website, discoverycommunity.church, and you can podcast right through the website, listen to past uh, messages. You can go through Google Play, iTunes, and do the same thing through there. It's good to catch up on it because this is one of those books that is so misunderstood. One of the reasons I'm so excited to teach through it is because there's so many misunderstandings, misconceptions, downright wrong teaching, and some people are just so afraid of the concept that they don't even want to talk about it. It's not that they've been taught wrong. They haven't been taught at all because they don't want to know. There are people that do that. But it isn't a scary book. It's not meant to be scary. It's not a book about God's wrath and pain and suffering and fire and brimstone. Okay, those are all elements in it. Absolutely. We can't change that, nor would I want to change it, because it fulfills God's plan. And God is a good God. But it's a book of hope. It is a book of hope, knowing that he, not only is he good and he loves us and he's made a way from the beginning, but that he's always been in control. One of my favorite things is somebody pointed out, I think it was even just a meme on Facebook. Do you realize that nothing has ever caught God unaware? Nothing has ever surprised him. He's known from the very beginning, and he has made a way for us to come to him. It's not a, well, I just hope everything works out. He has made a way. And not only that, but he's made a roadmap in terms of of his word available to us so that we can study through. That's why we study through this. This is a book of hope. And after the 16 weeks that we've been in it already now, we've talked about, we've talked about Jesus appearing in this, in this prophetic vision um, to the Apostle John. 
while he was in exile and given him this vision, just laid out this entire thing to him. But he starts out, Jesus starts out by just giving words of exhortation, words of encouragement to the seven churches. Remember that all the way back at the beginning, saying, hey, I know you're going through some things, but hold on. Hold on, persevere. If you persevere and hold on, you will receive the crown of glory. And that theme really carries all throughout this book. Hold on and persevere. If you do, great things await. Okay, and that's what we get to see now. We've talked about the opening of the scrolls. We've talked about judgment, God's progressive judgment beginning as the heat gets turned up more and more and more on these people who are resistant, reluctant, downright defiant and antagonistic against God. But even then, he doesn't just say, I'm done with you, I'm turning my back on you. He says, I'm going to turn up the heat little by little by little until you realize that you need something more than yourself. That you need something more than what you've been taught as far as self-reliance and reliance on other gods and other ways. You need something more, and he's offering that lifeline. This is also, for the visitors, this is an interesting book in that it's the only one in the entire Bible that explicitly states, Revelation 1-3, reads like this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's the only one that says you're blessed if you read it, blessed if you hear it. But you also have to heed it. So you will hear it. I'm going to read the entirety of this scripture here in just a few moments, and I've done this all the way through our series. You will, by the time we're done in a couple weeks, you will have heard every single word of this book read and taught about in this church because I want you to be blessed by it. But the other part of that is you have to heed it. You have to take it to heart. In other words, you have to understand it. So my job is to make it come to life and kind of help everyone come to an understanding of really what God is trying to get across to you because there's so much imagery, so much like, what is he talking about here? There's a lot of that. And so my job is to cut through all that and make it come to life. So on that, before I start, I just want to pray real quick for just open eyes and, and ears and hearts to receive. So Father God, we thank you for, thank you that you have given us this roadmap. And in the culmination of your entire history, we see this prophetic vision that we can take hope with. Not hope that things turn out right, but an assuredness that things are going to turn out right because this is how they turn out. So Father, I just pray that you open our ears to hear, our eyes to see what you have for us, but more importantly, our hearts to get the heart behind your words. Father, we pray for revelation like we have never had it before. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get going. Last week, last week we saw the fall of Babylon, right? We were in chapter 17 and 18. We saw the fall of Babylon in two ways. Now, not the city of Babylon, not the kingdom of Babylon. Those are long gone. What we saw is the fall of the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon in terms of false religion, the spirit of Babylon in terms of this quest for power, this love for power, and this love for money, this idolatry that's going on, all of which are encompassed in what's called the spirit of Babylon. And we saw as the spirit of Babylon was literally crushed and thrown into the sea. That part's over. And there's so much debate about when this happens, okay? We talk about the tribulation. 
pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation. There's all kinds of debate that goes back and forth. And really, honestly, scholars have opinions, well-studied, well-documented opinions all over the board on that. So I'm not here to tell you with finality this is exactly what it is. But what we do know is that at this point, we've reached, we've reached chapter 19. At this point, the tribulation period is over. That seven-year period, no matter how you look at it, is over. And now we get a glimpse of how everything ends. And it's exciting. Again, talking about judgment and fire and brimstone and earthquakes and people being killed and all this. It's not, it's exciting, yes, but it's not super warm and fuzzy, right? Here we get to see victory. Victory and victory and victory. We get to see that through all this. So let's get into it. The ultimate victory of the Lamb of God unfolds now. So let's get into this. Revelation chapter 19. It's 21 verses. Now, I'm going to read it. And for those of you who are visiting, I use the New American Standard version. I love that version, but your version might read a little bit differently, okay, especially when we put scriptures up on the screen. They might be a little different. So follow along if you want. If you want to just listen, go ahead and do that. But I'm going to read the whole scripture in its entirety now, and then we'll dig into what it means. <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation 19, 21 verses reads like this. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. At a second time, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived all those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. All right, remember I said the warm and fuzzy part starts tonight, today? That doesn't sound super warm and fuzzy, does it? In fact, parts of it sound horrible. But let's talk about what it means, and I think that you'll see that we have every reason through all of this unfolding to praise God. Praise God in his mercy. Let's jump right in because there's a lot to cover. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So if you're reading this, the first thing that I, if I'm studying this, that would jump out to me is after these things, right? After what things? So we have to answer that question. So remember, the Bible in its entirety, the the chapter verse divisions, right, are just put in there by us later on to make sense of it. So it's easy to find and so it's easy to study, easy to read. This is actually a continuation of the previous thought. So first of all, what had just happened in the previous chapter, right? 17 and 18, what had happened? Okay, Babylon was crushed and thrown into the sea, right? Millstone around its neck, sunk into the sea. We've seen that. Babylon in spirit has ended. No more wine, women, and song and do whatever you want. That spirit has been crushed and thrown down forever. In fact, the last verse of chapter 18, verse 24, says this, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on the earth. So that's the last thought of 18, or last thought of 18, the first thought of 19 is essentially hallelujah. Let's praise him, right? Those who belong to God, those, those who have been persecuted, have been martyred, have been killed, have been enslaved all throughout time, have been told time and time again not to take vengeance of their own, right? They've been told that from the very beginning. Justice is not yours. Justice belongs to God. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance belongs to God. So don't try to seek your own justice, but just hold on, right? Just hold on. How would you feel after all these things are happening to you and you know that you have this powerful God who could smite your enemies, who could extract justice and vengeance in a heartbeat, but he's not doing it yet? You'd be going, please, 
please, Lord, now, now is, now is fine with me if you're ready. We see this over and over again, all the way back to Moses in Deuteronomy. In fact, when in Deuteronomy is echoed by Paul in Romans, Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That term, vengeance is mine, I will repay, goes all the way back again to Moses. They're told, hang on, don't worry, I will repay you. And the reason that we're told that over and over again is even though we have, we have the power in our flesh to extract vengeance and seek some kind of justice or retribution, right? God's the only one that can do that without sin. We see time and time again this whole idea uh, in movies. Who here has ever watched a movie that just doesn't end the right way? You know what I'm talking about. The bad guy doesn't get it in the end. The bad guy skates off into the sunset, and you're like, what? That's not how it's supposed to work. But in reality, it works that way more often than not. And it's not up to us to seek that revenge, but it's the right way of things is that you would be repaid for your deeds, but not by us, by God. And that's why it's important that we watch this unfold. Let's move on. Revelation 19.2. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot. Remember, the great harlot is the spirit of Babylon who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Okay. By the way, in my version, the, the all caps right there reference Old Testament scripture. It's not a typo. The caps lock didn't get stuck on. That is referencing Old Testament scripture. They pull that in from time to time to give authority to what they're teaching. In other words, saying, this is not the first time you've heard this. I'm saying it now, but you've been taught this very same thing before. It's a way to bring them back to things that they have been taught over time. And after a while, we start piecing together. God told me then. He's telling me now. I've seen it unfold now I can have assurance that it's going to work the way he says it's going to work. But this right now, his judgments, we see this unfolding. This is the justice that the enemies of God have been praying for for so long. Not the enemies, that the, the children of God, the saints, those who believe in God have been praying for this kind of justice, this kind of retribution for a long time. And now it's unfolding. It's unfolding between their eyes. And it's unmistakable. Think about... Again, if you're a Jew, you thought that you were the chosen people. Okay, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and yet they're enslaved and they're persecuted and all these things happen to them all throughout time, and they're sitting there saying to themselves, why, God, are you waiting? What are you waiting for? Strike them down now. Deliver us now. They're waiting for it, and it's not happening which is one of the reasons why when Jesus appeared as Messiah, they didn't recognize him because they had been waiting and praying for a powerful God to come down with lightning bolts and who knows what and just crush their enemies. The Messiah did not appear like that. He rode in on a donkey as a lamb, gentle. And so they're saying that can't possibly be the guy we've been waiting for. 
This is one reason they have such a hard time. In fact, going all the way back to Psalms, David, David had all kinds of reason to want to pray that God would smite his enemies. He was besieged on all sides, right? Psalm 109, David flat out prays that God would crush his enemies. It's not a very spiritual prayer. God crushed them. So we see this over and over again, but again, they're told to wait, told to persevere. And in fact, later on, we see in the New Testament, Peter teaching this new church in Jerusalem, trying to lay down some theology that they can grasp, is trying to struggle and deal with this concept of why God waits. And here's what he said, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He explains the reason for this. is not so that I can just crush everyone who does wrong. The reason is I want to give everyone a chance. I want to give everybody the opportunity to repent and turn to him. He knows full well that many, many will not do that, but he's giving them every opportunity. This is why the slowness of God, as we perceive slowness, waiting for that time, waiting for that time when everybody who's going to repent will repent. Revelation chapter 19, verses 3 and 4 reads like this. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, The 24 elders, remember the 24 elders represent the church as a whole, right? Twelve of them are the Old Testament patriarchs, okay? Or it could be the 12 tribes of Israel, but it's the old church. And then the new church with the 12 apostles. This is what's what's symbolized by the 24 elders, right? So this is the church, and the church is saying amen and hallelujah, Because now it's time for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see this unfold. So before we get into that, let's talk for a moment about the marriage supper. Let's talk about Hebrew wedding tradition. It's important to understand that the way God has ordained things to go from the beginning of time is in many ways what he wants. If he's ordained it, that's how he sees it unfolding. So things like marriage. Marriage is an image for us. That's how his plan works on earth, is a marriage between a man and a woman and how those things go. So he has ordained this all the way from beginning of time. And Hebrew culture follows along with this idea that God preordained for the marriage of the lamb to his bride, which is us, the church. So let's talk about this Hebrew wedding tradition. It is very orderly in most cases. It is laid out. Here's how it works. And typically it's four steps, some intermediate steps, but four main steps. The first one is the promise. Some would call it the betrothal, right? Sometimes that even happened when when, uh, the bride and groom were children. Sometimes even before they were born, they would say, my firstborn will marry your firstborn. So they, made, they had these covenants that they made with each other, inner tribes and inner families back then. 
Here's how it looks in the Bible. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, trying to kind of describe how this works. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Okay, so he's betrothing the church to Christ. He's promising the church to Christ, but he's making every effort to teach them they need to keep themselves pure and presentable to Christ. Then the second step is the presentation of the bride. Again, Paul, but writing to the Ephesians this time, chapter 5, 25 to 27, says, Husbands, love your wives. How many have heard that in a wedding? Right? I say of this or a version of this in most every wedding that I do. Husbands, love your wives. Listen to how he sets up what a marriage should look like. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that, she might, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This has been his plan. The third step in the, in the tradition is the ceremony. The ceremony, again, we see that we see that in chapter 19 happening right now. This one is verses uh, chapter 19, verses 7, 8. This one we have on screen. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, the saints are given to the bridegroom. The saints are those who have come to faith in Jesus. Those are the saints that he's talking about here. They have kept themselves pure. Now, there's something important that we need to note here. There are two kinds of righteousness or two kinds of purity. One is what Jesus died on the cross to give us. Through that act, he paid the price for us. He paid the penalty that was due to us. And through that act then... We are made righteous in the eyes of God. Okay, We are declared innocent at that in the eyes of God. Christ did that. That's not what this is. What we're talking about here is by actions, righteousness of actions, by choice. If your bride is locked in a dungeon for her entire life and never has the opportunity to not be pure, it's not too surprising and or special that she is pure at that time. What this is, is you have had the opportunity to make choices, good and bad, but that ultimately you have made the right choices and you have kept yourself pure for God. It's the exhortation that Jesus was giving to the churches at the beginning. Hold on. Do the right thing. You're doing well at most things. Some things you can do better, but hold on because there is reward. This is what we're talking about here. Not the righteousness of Christ, but an act of perseverance and hanging on. Then we see number four, the supper, sealing the union. This is a foreshadowing kind of, 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 or the Lord's Supper foreshadowed this idea here. Let me read how it's described in Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 17, 18 says, When he had taken a cup and given thanks, sound familiar already? He said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on 
until the kingdom of God comes. This is a foreshadowing of this, what we see now as this supper, this supper of the Lamb, which was the final step celebrating when the supper was over, it basically, the wedding's done. We see this supper lasting a thousand years. This is a thousand year supper. That's quite a supper. But it culminates in a new heaven and a new earth, which we get to talk about in another chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so at this time, moving on then, we see heaven open up again. Remember, heaven opened up one time. It's opening up one more time right here. Heaven opens again, and Jesus returns to wage war on the forces of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And Scripture reads like this, Revelation 19, 11 to 13. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. A couple interesting things about this is this is Jesus, by the way. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is Jesus riding in on this white horse, faithful and true, judging in righteousness. His eyes are a flame of fire, meaning he can see everything, all seeing. On his head are many diadems. Remember, we see that imagery go on uh, with the Antichrist and the dragon and different things, representing kingdoms that had given him their power. This, that word many, translates as too many to count, innumerable, okay? So innumerable kingdoms and tribes and people are ascribing their power to Jesus, and that's represented by the crown that he wears. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. In other words, John seeing this, this is not something that's being told to John, he's seeing this unfold in front of him. He can see that there's a name written, but he can't comprehend it. That's interesting. Now, I wish I could tell you, my study says, this is what it said. There's nowhere where we see what that means. But what this does mean is that there are things still, even at this point, that are just going to be beyond our comprehension. He can see a name, but he doesn't know what it says. He is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The robe dipped in blood, by the way, is the blood of the saints, those who have been martyred, those who have been killed in the tribulations up until now. This is what's happening. This is the unfolding of the actual battle of Armageddon. Remember, we saw it in past chapters where they're gathering together. The wine press of God is this valley of Megiddo where Armageddon takes place. Revelation 19, 14 to 16 says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, illustrating their righteousness, right, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So much in that. The sharp sword is the word of God. The sharp sword is this word right here. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it says. Sharper than any edge, capable of dividing bone and marrow, soul and spirit. This is the sword, the very word of God that he is judging those against. 
and using that very word to destroy them. The wine press, again, is this valley or this plain of Megiddo. By the way, on his, the last verse there where it says, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's not a tattoo. Some people are like, is Jesus riding in on shorts and he's got a tattoo that you can see? I've had people ask me that question. In those times, a coat of armor, especially for a horse rider, mounted rider, would come all the way down to, to protect his thighs, his loins from, from swords and, and from spears and things like that. And there would typically be what we would call a coat of arms, identifying who you are and who your allegiance is, would be written on your thigh, on the, on the armor on that area. So that's what it's referring to here. Revelation 19, 17, 18. Now get this, what's happening here as we read this. Two armies facing off against each other, against, over this plain. And you hear this unfold. Revelation 19, 17, 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. This is the only version I can find of angelic trash talk. In the Bible. Imagine two armies getting ready to face off. And you're thinking, if you're, if you're following the devil, if you're, if you're on the wrong side of this, you got to be thinking you got a chance, right? Until you hear this. Like, wait, what? Is he talking about me? Birds gather together because you're about to be able to fill your bellies. This supper that he's talking about this, this great supper of God is not what we talk about, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, this is a metaphorical supper. You're going to fill your bellies off the bodies of these people. It's not a pretty picture, but it is reason to be excited. Revelation 19.19 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Again, these two armies facing off against each other ready to do battle, and we see it unfold like this. Revelation 19, 20, 21. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." The Antichrist and the false prophet, puppets of Satan, quickly defeated. Just like that. All this build up to it, and just like that, they're defeated. Thrown into the lake of fire. We see this idea of this lake of fire. Uh, Mark talks about it in chapter 9, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than than having your two hands go into hell into the unquenchable fire. That, I bring this up because that word hell there describes a place. That word translates in the Greek as Gehenna. And Gehenna is an area outside of Jerusalem. It's actually an area that was uh, a trash heap, a trash heap for generations, trash heap. They would throw their, their garbage in this valley and burn it. And so every day, 24-7, 
this trash would burn, okay? It was like a perpetual flame, and it was nasty, and it smelled bad. There were bodies, livestock, and meat, and all kinds of different things. It stunk. Smoke would rise up. It was a nasty place to be, okay? Brimstone smells just like sulfur, and that's the smell that they would have been getting out of this. It's also called the Valley of Hinnom. It's southwest of Jerusalem. This is the image. They're not talking about we're literally going to throw you in that trash heap. This is imagery of the place that they're going to be thrown into, this unquenchable lake of fire, which is what it would have looked like. It sounds like a dark, horrific scene, right? There's nothing in that that you're like, yay, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. So why then the celebration in heaven? Why then all the hallelujahs in heaven? It's because at this point, everything that God had promised from the beginning of time to persevere and you will receive the prize, it's unfolding now. You see the beast, the false prophet, the antichrist, you see them all gathered up and crushed. The spirit of Babylon gathered up and crushed. You see it coming to fruition right now, the fulfillment of all these promises And it's exciting. It's an exciting time to see this happen. No matter how terrible the forces against you might be, God has foreseen it, and he's made a way, and you win. Ultimately, you win. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. And can I get an amen? Amen. For you visitors, that's not a normal thing. (laughs) Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. Let's talk for a second, though, about the word hallelujah. We say hallelujah a lot. We sing it in songs. Sometimes I feel like God gave me this picture. We throw it out like like candy from a parade float. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah for you. Hallelujah over here. We throw it out like like it doesn't mean much in some cases. Like it's just a general term of praise. Let's talk about the word hallelujah for just a second. The word hallelujah, we see it in both Old and New Testament, okay, we see it, Old Testament, New Testament. It's a, actually a Hebrew word broken into two. There's halal, which means praise, and yah, which means God. So hallelujah literally means praise God. Anybody have any idea how many times the word hallelujah is in the Bible? Anybody have any idea? John, I'm expecting you to have an answer here. I purposely didn't put it in my notes. 26 times. The word hallelujah is in the Bible 26 times. 22 of them in Psalms, written by David. Written by David as he was besieged and beset upon by his enemies, as he had a desperation for God to come to his aid. If God doesn't come to David's aid, God is a spot on the ground. He is nothing. He's done for. David, what? What did I say? If God doesn't come to his aid, David is a spot on the ground. That's exactly what I thought in my head. (laughs) David has nothing. David is a mighty man. David is a chosen man of God, right? God loved David. God's the one that exalted him to that position. But without God, 
David had nothing to offer, especially nothing to stand against the things that came against him all the time. And so if there was anybody in the entire history of the Bible that had a reason to say hallelujah, it was David. And he said it 22 of the 26 times that it's listed in the word of God. Do you know where the other four times are? Revelation 19. Very good. You're paying attention. Revelation 19. And why? Because now we see these things unfolding. All these promises, generations, thousands of years of promises of God, we see them unfolding. And we can say, praise God, it's happening. I can see it. It's right in front of me. And what we see these hallelujahs coming from are these spiritual voices, these angelic voices in heaven. The saints, the martyrs in heaven, these heavenly voices, it says, proclaiming hallelujah because they've been waiting for so long for deliverance. They've been waiting so long for God to extract revenge on their enemies. And it's happening. And this is a reason for them to praise. It's only heavenly heavenly voices, but they're seeing God's mercy and his power and his promises fulfilled. They're seeing it right in front of their eyes. And their natural response is hallelujah. We see that. We see told again and again the promises of God. What does scripture say? The promises of God are yes and amen. Right? We've heard that scripture before. It's actually in 1 Corinthians. Promises of God are yes and amen. Let's talk about that word Amen. What does the word amen mean? It's usually, it's like, it's a period at the end of a prayer, right? It's like send. (laughs) Depending on where you read it, it could be so be it or it is so, things like that. But here's what it means in Isaiah. Isaiah, speaking of this apocalyptic time, this end times, Isaiah 65, 16, it uses the word God of truth. And God of truth translates as amen. God's promises are true. And this is why we can praise him. And this is why we can scream out hallelujah because God's promises are true. It's not like promises of a human being where you're like, well, you didn't come through last time. We'll see if if it happens this time. God's promises are yes and amen. And amen God of truth, and that's why we can praise him. Amen is the receiving of his promises. Hallelujah is the giving back of our praise for those promises. So when we say amen and hallelujah, they have weight. They have weight and gravity, and so we don't say them lightly. We say that understanding. By the way, amen and hallelujah, the only two words in the English language, in our language, that are Uh, pronounced the same in any language. Amen and hallelujah are pronounced the same with dialects, difference, but in any language all throughout the world. Now, if you Google it, you're going to see there's a third. And the third is the word huh, H-U-H, which that does not count. That's not a word. Huh is not a word. However, apparently it's universal, and you can say that anywhere. Amen and hallelujah are the same in any language, and the reason, I think, is not a mistake. It's not an accident. God is to be praised no matter where you are, no matter who you are. Praise him and thank him. Praise him for what he's done. 
thank him for his promises. Those that have been fulfilled and those that are yet to be fulfilled, we can praise him knowing that his word is true. His word is literally true. So thanks to this prophecy that's revealed in Revelation, we can celebrate these things, that God will deliver us from our enemies, that God will dispense justice on the deserving, that God will crush the spirit of rebellion, that God is sovereign in all the universe, always has been. And the last one, that God has made a way for sinners like us to be with him for eternity. Amen and hallelujah. The last verse here that I want to share with you, we jump back to chat to verse 6, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Amen. Church, are you willing to raise a hallelujah with us here this morning? So if you're not a stander and worshiper, I want to encourage you to stand and worship now. Let's raise a hallelujah together. I'll talk about communion after this song. Let's stand up and sing like somebody who has been saved. Amen.